here. I invite you to turn in your Bibles to Galatians chapter 3. Galatians 3. This is a letter to the early church and now to us that seeks to accomplish two things. Number one, protect the freedom and the joy of the good news of Jesus Christ, the gospel. And number two, so that we will be encouraged to live in accordance with that good news. That's really what this letter is all about. The section we're in right now has to do with the significance of the rules and commands that God gave to ancient Israel. The Apostle Paul had to deal with that because some teachers were saying, you need to keep those laws in order to be saved, in order to be right with God. In order to be forgiven for your sins and declared righteous, all of that means justified. So the question Paul asks and then he answers is, why, why then the law? Why did God give the laws to Israel? Was it really, as these teachers were saying, to justify us, to make us right before him? Or was it something else? Paul's answer throughout this whole letter has been no. The law was never meant to justify anybody before God. A person is justified, declared righteous by faith alone, in Christ alone, and his saving work on our behalf. And that's the news that frees us and brings joy. And that's the news we need to protect. But it takes a whole letter to, to do it. And so we're walking through that letter. Uh, as with last week, this message is titled, Why Then the Law? And we'll finish answering that question with Paul's logic in verses 23 to 29. So, if you have a Bible, follow with me as I read that passage, and then we'll pray. Now, before faith came, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian. For in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ there is neither Jew nor Greek, there is neither slave nor free, there is no male and female, for you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Let's pray. God, our Father, we ask you now to open up our eyes and our hearts by your Spirit to understand your good news. We have to take ancient texts and somehow interpret that into our current situation, and we need your Spirit to do that, and you have provided your Spirit. It's your delight, your joy, your intention that we might see your glory and the glory of Christ and in his atoning work. And so we ask you now to open up our minds and our hearts. You know what we need to hear. You know the distractions we have. You know the trials we face. You know the things that we don't understand. And so now, do your, your good work of illuminating this text and, again, raising us up to see all that we have in Christ. We ask it in his name. Amen. 
If I could capture the relevance of this passage for us today, I think I could put it in the form of a question. When you do wrong, when your conscience bothers you, tells you you missed the mark, when that moment of conviction takes place, what do you do with that once you have that guilt? I can think of three ways that we can go. One is we can just ignore our conscience and pretend like we didn't really do anything wrong. Uh, move on to the next thing you have to do. Get busy. Distract yourself with Netflix. Um, something like that. Take refuge, maybe, in substances to help you forget. But if the failure, if the sin, if the guilt is real, then it doesn't go away by doing any of those things, by ignoring it. It's still there. Or, this is probably more common, when guilt raises its head, we might try harder to do a better job and do the right thing. At least that way, we can start to feel like we're kind of sort of meeting the standard. We're at least making our way upwards. We're not totally terrible people. And then we feel a little bit more like we're right before God. But that doesn't work either because God says the standard is perfection. Cursed is everyone who does not do all that is written in the law. That's what Galatians 3 says. You've got to do everything. And none of us does that. So that doesn't work either to just sort of try harder. The third option is the gospel way. The third option is Galatians, this letter, trying to tell us how we deal with our guilt. We acknowledge it. We trust that Christ bore the curse in our place. And that makes us right with God. And then relieved of condemnation, we are assured of God's fatherly love for us. And then we ask for his help to walk forward in his ways. That's what Paul is arguing for in this letter and in this passage. We can follow his logic in three parts. It starts with a history lesson. How God dealt with Israel. What was the law for in their life? And then it moves on to an analogy, something that was current during the time of the Galatian churches, something they could connect to themselves. And then it closes with an implication. If these things are so, what, how does that change your life? How do you act differently? So we're going to walk through this, this logic. Start with the history lesson, which is the purpose of the law for Israel. Let's read verses 23 and 24 again because that's where we find it. He said, Before faith came, we were held captive under the law. We being Israel, Paul being a member of Israel, a Jew, so he's thinking Jews here, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. So then the law was our guardian until Christ came in order that we might be justified by faith. So I'm calling this a history lesson because Paul's talking about how the law of God, the law that was given to Israel through Moses, how it functioned in their history. There were two stages in Israel's history that he refers to in verse 23. The first one, the period that Paul describes as before faith came, by which he means before Christ came. 
So from the time God gave Israel the law on tablets of stone on Mount Sinai up until the time that Jesus Christ was born, lived a perfect life, died on a cross, was resurrected. In between that is this stage that he's talking about. He's calling it before faith came. And here's how he describes it. It was this time when we, that is the Jewish people, were held captive under the law. We were captives. What does he mean by that? Well, if I could borrow a phrase from Dickens' classic, A Tale of Two Cities, it was a time that was the best of times and the worst of times. It was the best of times, this period of Israel's life, because God gave to Israel something he didn't give to any other nation on earth, his laws. Now, that might sound good to modern ears. We don't typically think of laws as good. We think of laws as like, that's all the stuff I can't do or all the stuff that I have to do. We have like this negative opinion about what law is. That doesn't feel very friendly, very relational, uh, very life-giving. And yet, God's law is very good. Um, That by it, there are good things that happen. It is the way we were created to live. The law of God reveals the character of God. Without it, we wouldn't know what he's like, what matters, what doesn't matter, what's right, what's wrong. We wouldn't know what's the right way to live according to our design by our creator. So the law is like an instruction manual on how to operate a complicated piece of machinery, (laughs) or in this case, how to do life. We do better with an instruction manual. It's a gift to have it. Psalm 147 says, God declares his word to Jacob, his statutes and rules to Israel. He has not dealt thus with any other nation. They do not know his rules. The law is good. It is good to know God's character and God's way, which is good. So it was the best of times in that way. But it was also the worst of times because Paul says during that time we were held captive under the law. We were captives under it. Now, how could that be the case if the law is a good thing? We talked about this in the previous verses last week. Verse 22 says, The scriptures, or the law, imprisoned everything under sin. That is, by showing us the way of righteousness, the way to do life according to God's will, we see just how much we're not doing it. We realize that there's this moral standard out there, this absolute truth, and then we can compare ourselves to that and we realize, whoa, I'm not doing that. That's way higher than I'm able to do. So if the law says, you shall not covet, which means you shouldn't crave to possess something that doesn't belong to you, and you have this law that says you shall not covet, all of a sudden you realize, oh, wow, I do that all the time. Like, every time the wilderness edition of a Subaru Outback goes by, I want that thing. (laughs) And then you read this law, it says, do not do that, do not covet that thing. And you go, wow, that is hard not to do. 
because that kind of goes deep into what I love. And that doesn't change right away. But the law exposes us. It exposes our sin, exposes our deviation from God's will. And Paul says that's a form of captivity. We were held captive under the law. Imprisoned, he says. It's a form of imprisonment. The law, what it did is it showed Israel just how trapped in sin they really were. It locked them up in a prison house of sin from which there was no escape except for one thing. Within the law was a provision for having your sins atoned for. A way to be reconciled to God but for transgressing His laws, and that was the system of animal sacrifices. So a person brought an animal into the tabernacle or into the temple. The priest would kill it. The blood was splattered on the side of the altar before God. And God's law says, by doing all this, the person who brought the offering will have their sins forgiven, will have their sins atoned for, they'll be reconciled to God. It wasn't exactly clear how that worked. Because how can an animal's death pay for your sin? But that's what the law said to do, and so you just had to take it uh, on faith in God's promise that that sacrifice somehow atones for your sin. But it's still by faith, that part of the law, right? So during the best of times and the worst of times in this part of Israel's history, here's where things stood. The law of God, though it was good, trapped Israel in a prison house of sin from which there was no escape except by faith. Faith in a sacrifice slain in their place and for their sin. That was the purpose of the law, was to get them to realize they need that. Then comes the second period of their history that Paul refers to, which he calls when the coming faith would be revealed or until Christ came. So this new period of history is when Christ came. And when Christ came, He is the perfect sacrifice that all the other sacrifices we're looking forward to. The one that really does it. The, the, the animal sacrifice didn't really have what it takes to, to deal with human sin, but along comes Jesus, man who can die for man's sin, yet God, whose death can count for all sin, atone for all sin. He lives this perfect life and becomes this perfect sacrifice and is, becomes the substitute that dies in our place. And anyone who looks to him as the lamb that was slain, then they are forgiven. They are counted righteous. They are reconciled to God. So Paul's point from Israel's history is that the purpose of the law was never to save Israel. It was intended to point them to the one who does save, their promised Messiah, who would later be revealed as Jesus Christ. Let's connect this to our lives today. Because as it was for Israel, so it is with us also. 
God's word tells us what's right and what's wrong. It's a moral standard. It tells us what we must do, what we must not do, because God created everything, and he knows how it works. He knows what it's for, and he tells us what to do. And even without having read the Bible, we have a conscience that knows deep down God does exist, and he has a will. He has plans. He has designs. And we know deep down when we sin. There's hardly anybody that you could meet who wouldn't agree. Murder is bad. Lying is bad. There is in our souls, because God put it there, this sense, this awareness. We live in a God-created world that has a moral order. It's in there. But as I mentioned earlier, once we break that moral order, once we go against what we know is right, there's this guilt if our conscience is working right, and then we can try and deal with that guilt in a couple of different ways. We can try and ignore it. But ignoring it doesn't make it go away. It's still there. And if it's still there, God's Word says the wages of sin is death. There is penalty. There is judgment by God. So that doesn't help. Or we try harder to do good. But we find out, like Israel did, that you can never be good all the time. Those sacrifices, they had to keep being made over and over and over again. And so they never get rid of the guilt because there's always new sins. That's a prison. You don't find your freedom doing that. The only way of escape from the prison house of sin is to trust in Jesus as the sacrifice who atones for us. Who, as Peter said, suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God. We're made righteous in God's eyes through faith in Christ alone and not by the law, not by keeping it, not by doing the right things. But we don't always live like that's true. The fact is we can live like Israel did before faith came. We can still uh, just kind of always operate under this burden of having to do everything right. And always knowing that we're not doing it right. And always knowing that there's guilt there. And we can live as if faith didn't come. We can live as if Christ didn't come. As if there wasn't actually a satisfactory sacrifice that deals with our sin. We're still trying to do it ourselves. We can live that way. I know. I've lived that way much of my life. God helping me. I'm moving away from it. And you can too. You can find more freedom in living in the after, in the time when Christ came, when faith came, the object of our faith has been revealed as Jesus and God is satisfied with his work. That's the lesson from history. Trust in Jesus, not in the law, for your righteousness. Now here's the same truth from another angle. Paul comes at it with an analogy. So if a history lesson won't do, how about if we learn this from something that you know about in life, you first century Galatian Christians? Uh, let's take something, let's take something that you're aware of, and let's make that uh, our point of, of con concentration here. The analogy is the difference 
between relating to a guardian and relating to a father. That's the analogy. It's in verses 24 to 26. Let's read that again. So then, the law was our guardian until Christ came, in order that we might be justified by faith. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. Now a guardian is something these mostly Gentile or Greek believers in Jesus knew all about. But we need help to understand what that meant. Fortunately, we have three movies called Guardians of the Galaxy <laughs> that has uh, revived this, this word guardians into common usage again. And in the movies, it's all about this band of misfits who protect the galaxy, galaxy from all manner of evil. And they've got really cool guns and all kinds of powers. And they protect things. That's what the guardians do, right? Protection is the main idea in the word guardian. Well, in the first century, a guardian or a pedagogue in the original language was a slave who was assigned to guard or watch over a young boy. It was the pedagogue's job to escort the boy to school to protect him from harm. But it was also his job to keep the boy in line to instruct him in morality and discipline him if he went astray. And eventually his job is complete once the child reaches maturity and enters into his full sonship with his father. So the, the dominant idea of a pedagogue or a guardian is guarding, watching over, keeping in line for a period of time. Today we might call this person a chaperone. I have a distinct memory of a chaperone from my days in high school. In my last year of school, all the seniors on the football team got to travel down to University of Wisconsin-Madison to watch a college football game. That was our treat now that our season was over and we'd never play football again. Um, so we go down there. We have, it's like a four-hour trip from northern Wisconsin down to Madison. And for us, that was like going to New York City. Like, um, I mean, our town didn't have a traffic light, still doesn't. Um, you had to travel to the next town to see a movie. Like, it was small town, rural. So going to Madison was like going to New York City. Like, we were down there, like, this was an adventure. Wide-eyed uh, young teenagers away from their parents in the big city. Uh, ready to indulge ourselves in whatever the big city had to offer Whatever would enter into the mind of a teenager separated from his parents. One thing held us in check. Our chaperone, Mr. Sleeter. <laughs> you didn't mess with Mr. Sleeter. He was our football coach. And he knew how to make life miserable for you if you got out of line. With many push-ups and laps around the field, and other forms of humiliation. Um, and his job on this trip was to bring us back home to our parents in one piece and without the police chasing after us. And he did that. That's what a good chaperone does. 
Paul says the law was like that for the people of Israel. It was like a chaperone. It had a job to protect the people from harm by showing them the good and the right way, but it was also to keep them in line because it had consequences for disobedience. But like a chaperone, its role was temporary. It wasn't ultimate. A time came when the law no longer had custody, you might say, of Israel. Its authority ended once it brought them back into right relationship with God as Father. And how did the law do that? By preparing them to put their faith in Jesus Christ as the atoning sacrifice that makes them right before God. Once they put their faith in Christ, they come of age. They don't need the chaperone, his authority in their life anymore now they look to God as their father. And he takes over, you might say. It changes your relationship with the law entirely. Like a chaperone, the law would still remain a friend, but it's no longer in charge. Now it takes over as a relationship with God as father. So that's a relationship with rules, to be sure. Every good household has rules. There's still training, there's still correction, but what governs the relationship, the bedrock foundation that it's built on, is fatherly love, his acceptance, his relentless pursuit of your good, the security of knowing that he will never leave you or forsake you, his wise care, and a promised inheritance. Now that faith has come, in the appearance of Jesus Christ, we are no longer under a guardian, for in Christ Jesus you are all sons of God through faith. That's the change. The guardian has handed you off to the Father. And it's a different relationship. Let's work out how this works in real life. How does this change things? Here's the difference between living like the law is our chaperone still and like God is our father. Those are your options. Is God like a chaperone or is he like a father? Under a chaperone, rules are the big thing, the guiding principle. Like Mr. Sleater. I'm not related to Mr. Sleater, but he has a job to do and he's got authority to do it and he's got rules. So it's all about the rules. That's the basis of this relationship. I have to obey. I have to do what he says. If I don't do it, then things are going to be going downhill. His approval is conditioned on my performance. That's what it's like to be under a chaperone. It's very rule-conscious existence where we stay in line so we can stay out of trouble or so that we can feel like we're doing everything right. So it's more about rules than it is about relationships. But what's life like under a father? And I know we ought all have good fathers in earthly life, but think about the perfect father. Well, it means that children of God, or sons it, it uses here, because sons were the ones who inherited all the inheritance, not the daughters. But he says, now you're all that. Sons and daughters, you all inherit completely from the father. 
We're sons of this God, and that means that there's a relationship that's based on fatherly love now, not rules. There are rules. A good father is going to have rules. But what's the bedrock? What's the foundation? It's his love. It's his commitment. It's that I'll never let you go steadfast kind of love. You won't ever not be my child, no matter what you do. It's different. There's rules, but what governs everything is steadfast, grab you by the ankles, won't let you go love because I'm your father. So that means that when guilt raises up in your mind because of your latest failure, you don't go to the law with that. You go to Christ. You don't go to the chaperone. You go to the Father. You, you don't go to try to do better. Instead, you go and you say, thank you for Christ who satisfied all the demands of the law for me. And by faith in him, I am reconciled to you. And so with that confidence, with no condemnation, I can move forward and now do the right thing because it pleases you and I love to do the right thing for you. Different motivation, different mindset. You're no longer under a chaperone. You are a child of God. That's a place of security, I think, and peace as we navigate the world with all of its temptations and trials how we do with God's laws, His commands, which are good, still does affect how we experience God's love. Sometimes there's going to have to be some correction. That won't feel good, but that's still love. And then a lot of times there's just going to be mercy. Like, I deserve so much worse than what's actually happened to me. (laughs) But God is merciful, and that's how we experience His love. But it's always going to be love for the child of God. Now, this, list, this leads to an implication for our lives. Paul finishes by explaining these spiritual realities that we've been talking about. They have relational effects. We might say vertical realities affect horizontal relationships. We're supposed to think differently and, and act differently towards others. So this is the last point, an implication. Spiritual realities have relational effects. Let's read verses 27 to 29 again. For as many of you as were baptized into Christ have put on Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. Okay, what's this about? Well, he's not talking about Israel's history anymore. He's talking straight to the Galatian Christians. There's no more we language in this last paragraph. It's all you language. You Galatians, you believers in these churches. And he starts out by pointing to their baptism. He says, you were baptized into Christ. So baptism is that sacrament where we immerse a believer in water. And it symbolizes outwardly what has taken place inwardly through faith in Christ. It takes place in water that displays our cleansing from sin's guilt. It involves going down into the water and then coming back out of the water that displays our union with Christ in His death and resurrection. 
His death for sin counts as my death for sin. His resurrection to life is what's already happened in me spiritually, but is going to happen to me physically one day. That's the baptism, and he's referring to, he says, as many of you as have done that, as many of you as have that faith, you have put on Christ, he says. That's a way of saying, your identity is now tied up with Christ's identity. He's God's son, and now you are counted as God's son because you're joined to him. You've put him on. You're in Christ, Stephen says. Christ is God's heir. That makes you God's heir of all that Christ is heir to. And verse 29 ends with that reality restated. If you are Christ's, then you are Abraham's offspring, heirs according to promise. In other words, you receive all the promises that God made to Abraham's offspring, who we learned earlier is Christ. All the promises of God's presence, God's favor, victory, ultimate victory over your enemies, an everlasting place with God in heaven. All of those blessings are Christ's. And if you're in Christ by faith, you're also going to get those. You're an heir. You're a child of God. You deserve it. He's going to give it to you because you belong to him. Bottom line, Paul's saying you are all, all of you believers, all of you baptized people who have expressed your faith through that, you are sons of God. That's what you have in common. Now, that being the case, it has two implications for the here and now. In 28, Paul says, he applies this spiritual reality of our common sonship to how we think about each other and how we treat each other in the church, despite all of our differences. He says, there is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free. There is no male or fe- and female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. Now, lots and lots of ink has been spilled in many, many books explaining that verse. I've got a book that's 150 pages long just on verse 28. Because there are so many different ways people are reading this thing. Um, ideas that are being thrown at it. This passage, especially where it says there is no male and female, has been used to say all kinds of things about gender and gender relationships. Uh, Some take Paul to be saying that the appearance of Christ and his sin-atoning death has obliterated all male-female distinctions, that there's really no difference in any kind of, uh, between male and female at all, It opens the door to everything from same-sex marriage to sharing, men and women sharing every role that you can imagine in the church, including preaching the Sunday morning message. And people look to verse 28 to back that up. But Paul's not saying here that there are no distinctions between all these people, ethnically, ethnically, socially, or in gender, Male and female uniqueness as image bearers of God is a divinely appointed reality and design in the garden before sin. Jesus did not need to change that. That wasn't something that needed to be fixed. 
No, that's always going to be there. He didn't obliterate distinctions. Paul's just saying here that our human distinctions are no longer the basis for how we relate to each other in the church. We no longer see each other primarily according to our differences, but according to our common sonship. We are all one in Christ Jesus. We are all sons of God through faith. That's what we have in common. Put yourself in the shoes of these Galatian Christians. Their church was comprised of Jews and Greeks, literally. It had slaves and free people in it. It had males and females. All these different people were getting saved, and they were being justified by faith in Christ, and now they're doing life together in the church. And these pairings of people are indicative of pairings that don't always get along, that don't always appreciate each other, don't know how to love each other across the differences. So Paul starts with, there is neither Jew nor Greek, because the whole issue that sparked this letter was Jews saying to the Greeks, you need to become Jews or you're not the people of God. You need to get circumcised. I'm not going to be in a Bible study with you until you get circumcised and start eating and stop eating pork. Like that's what that was the tension that's there. That's what started this letter. So he starts there. He's not saying, okay, there are no more Jews and Greeks in the Galatian churches. No, they're still there. But the trouble is how you look at each other. That's the thing. Whether you're a Jew or a Greek, you're latching on to that, and then you're like causing divisions and distinctions. And so Paul says, no, the Greeks don't need to become Jews. Greeks make very fine Christians being very Greek. (laughs) They don't need to get circumcised. They can keep eating bacon. He says, don't think of them as Greeks. Think Think of them as one with you in Christ. Think of them as your brothers and your sisters in Christ. You can say the same thing about the other categories. Slaves would be treated as inferior by free people. Women would be treated as inferior by men. All the differences between people that tend to keep us at arm's length or instill prejudice in us, those things cease to be barriers when we recognize we are one in Christ. And that's our common identity. That's the glue that holds us together. If Paul were writing this today, he might say, there's no white or black or Hispanic or Asian. There's no rich or poor. There's no doctors and fast food workers. There's no Porsche drivers and bus riders. There's no married and single, no male and female. These distinctions no longer keep you worlds apart. You are all one in Christ. Wherever you came from, whatever your background, whatever your story. What you have in common is that you are justified by faith. You are clothed with Christ. You are united to the Son of God. You are sons of God. You are heirs according to the promise. So treat each other like that, no matter what your background is. Oneness in Christ doesn't remove our distinctions. It removes our prejudice. 
That's what Paul's talking about. The church has to be a place where we experience the unity of relationship and diversity of personhood. And that can only be explained by the spiritual reality of our sonship with God the Father, which we have through faith in Christ. So let me just close with this. The question this chapter has been asking is, why then the law? What's the point of God giving us his rules and his commands? The answer is that the law shows us our need for Jesus Christ and his sin-bearing death. And only through faith in him are we forgiven our sins and made right with God. We become children of God. So let's not relate to God as a chaperone who's only interested in whether or not we're keeping in line. Let's relate to God as a loving father who is committed to our good and to each other. Let us be committed to each other as brothers and sisters, no matter what our life situation is. That's the fruit of the gospel that makes the church a picture of what is possible with God, but not possible with the world. Because it can only be derived from being one in Christ. And it's a picture of the world to come. So let's just keep pursuing more and more of a foretaste of that world. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your word which addresses every single issue we face in this world. You, we, you didn't need to add more pages to it. It's enough to tell us what we need for life and godliness. And it shows us the way of beauty, the way of rest and security in your love. And so, Lord, everyone here this, heard this. I pray that you would do the work that only your Spirit can do and give them the hope that they need, the comfort, the security, the peace. Challenge where necessary, but... Lord, give us a taste of your goodness that you have poured out on us in Jesus Christ, your Son. In his name we pray. Amen. Amen. Let's stand.